Exclusive Books is delighted to present another homebrew podcast series, a celebration of South African writers and their books. Now 25 years old, Exclusive Books Homebrew 2022 is not the same old story, but a mirror and a window into South Africa, where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. A remarkable selection of history, fiction, memoirs, current affairs, and children's books on our most pressing and relevant topics, from identity to feminism, corruption to corporates, self-love and identity, and everything in between. Incisiveness, humor, self-reflection, and hope abound. Check out the full selection in all exclusive bookstores and online. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. Welcome to the final episode of this year's Homebrew podcast. We end the series with a very special guest, Pretoria Boy's most famous old boy. And unlike the school's second most famous graduate, Damon Galgut has no plans to buy Twitter. Damon's latest novel, The Promise, was published last year. His first novel, A Sinless Season, was published in 1982 when he was just 17. Between A Sinless Season and The Promise are seven other novels, including The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room, both of which were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Last year, Damon went from Booker Shortlistee to Booker Victory when The Promise scooped the top prize. The Promise begins in 1986, after Rachel Swartz made a deathbed request to her husband to give Salome, the domestic worker who nursed Rachel when she was dying of cancer, the house on the family's farm in which she lives. Four funerals later, each funeral is about a decade apart, Rachel's request is finally fulfilled. Or is it? The Promise tells the story of the dysfunctional Swartz family and gives readers a glimpse of South Africa as it moves from apartheid to democracy and beyond, to a country where there are still many unfulfilled promises. The promise shows the Swartz as products of their time, but leaves us to come to our own conclusions about their, and if we're honest, our, place in history. Welcome to The Homebrew, Damon. Could you please read us an extract from The Promise? Sure. Hi, Jonathan. Good to be here. And, um... I'll take an extract from relatively early in the book, I guess, which gives a flavor of its central issue as well as the the way it's narrated, or at least I hope so. The family has done nothing, of course, about past promise to their mother. Nobody has mentioned it since Ma died, except Amor herself, and that not for a long time. She's thinking about this problem right now, and she very much wants to mention it. She believes, or perhaps only hopes, that a provision has been made in Pa's will to set the matter right. But it would be best if they could all agree on what to do before the will is read. In the dining room that evening, everyone around the table eating, is an obvious moment. And she's about to ask the question. The words are actually in her mouth. Their individual syllables completely innocent. Can Salome have her house now? And look, the scene from outside is so convivial, the room filled with friendly light, a fire burning in the grate, and the family gathered at their repast. What harm can such a question do? Send it out into the warm room. Perhaps the answer will surprise you. 
Wada! The impact is like a soft punch, releasing a collective cry of fear and relief, everybody turning at the same time. Amor's question drops to the floor, unasked. But no, that's not what made the sound. Something else, something quite material, has flown into the glass door very hard from outside. What is it, cries Dean, terrified. A bat? No, a bird. Those pigeons are very stupid, observes Oki. That was my mother's spirit, Astrid thinks irrationally. Why was it flying around at night, Marina wants to know. Must have been attracted by the stoop light. A dove, not a pigeon, lies dying on its back on the slate, amid a tiny blizzard of feathers. A thin thread of blood leaks from one nostril. Small creature, small death. One claw stiffens and convulses. The little body cools. Shame, go and bury the poor thing, Astrid urges her husband. She wants it removed from her sight. Dean goes out dutifully and lifts the bird up gingerly by one wingtip. He casts about for a suitable burial site and finds a spot in a disused flower bed under a thorn tree, digs a hole with his hands and tips the creature in, covers it up again, stands there for a minute dwelling on the death of his father way back when he was still a young boy. The bird took him there. One thing conjures up another. All events join somehow, at least in memory. Thank you, Damon. When you were a small child, you were sick with lymphoma. You spent a lot of time in hospital and your family members would read to you. Do any stories stick out from that time? And what role did these stories play in your literary trajectory? Um, you know, really what was important from that time wasn't the stories so much as the act of being read to and of learning about what stories can do. Um, the kind of sanctuary they can provide. Uh, really, there was nothing very unusual about the sorts of stories that introduced me to reading. I was I was very big on Enid Blyton back in those days, and I, I think a lot of those got read to me and reread. You know, Secret Seven and Famous Five, and so on. I know I know she has a sort of bad reputation these days, but really, I loved I loved those books. And then uh, some sort of book of African fables, I recall. As I say, it wasn't the books themselves so much as the fact that I connected so very intimately and intensely with um, storytelling and, and being read to in particular, listening to a story. When did your excitement in writing get stirred? And when did you realize that you were a writer? Well, you know, the excitement that stories gave me never died away. Um, and it was really just a, a kind of a short step from, you know, being excited by hearing stories to wanting to create them. I probably didn't get very far um, until I had a particular teacher when I was in what was known in those days as Standard 4. And he was just a very unusual English teacher and the kinds of assignments and creative challenges that he threw out, even though we were quite young, were very different to anything we'd had before and, and were really just the right thing at the right time for me. He did stuff which was a little bit out there. And one of the things he did was to read us Roald Dahl's short stories. And I, I don't mean the, the children's stories. He read us the adult stories, the dark tales with the, 
with a twist in them. And one of them in particular made a huge impression on me because it was about a little vegetarian boy. And I had just become vegetarian and I felt quite strongly about it. And the story just felt very, very personal. And the terrible climax, um, which I won't spoil for people who want to read it, the story is called Pig, felt as if it was centered on me and on my life. And, and I don't want to you know, overblow it, but the fact that a story could have such a powerful impact on my imagination, it was really the moment where I realized stories didn't have to be, you know, um, things that stroked you and made you feel consoled and comforted. They could be things that turned your world upside down and, and rattled your cage and made you question everything. And that was a big moment for me. It was in high school with a similar season when you wrote that. You were 17 when it was published. What would you say to 17-year-old Damon about his literary future? <laughs> you know, after my early excitement with stories, I, I wrote, you know, more or less consistently, I wrote a couple of very, very bad novels before Sinless Season. And um, I don't know that a Sinless Season was, you know, that much of an improvement, to be honest. It's, it's not a book I feel very proud of now. I think it's full of glaring adolescent faults. Nevertheless, it is the one I kicked off with. I, um, I think I would tell my younger self not to believe that this was going to be easy because I did make that um, assumption. <laughs> a lot of the attention that book got was, was focused on my age rather than on the book itself. And as my age sort of, you know, drew into line with those of the other writers I was competing with, you know, I was judged in the same way as everyone else. And it's a very, very tough line of work. You, you have to produce the work. It can't be about your age or some other sensational topic. So um, yeah, I would tell myself not to get too far ahead of myself and to settle in for the long haul because uh, a long haul is what it's about. Just talking about The Promise, one of the most interesting aspects of the novel is the roving narrator who floats from character to character, from scene to scene, and you know comes and goes and speaks directly to readers and even rebukes us. It seems that you had quite a lot of fun with this aspect of the novel. How did you come up with this convention-breaking technique? On some level, I was looking for a new way to tell a story. You know, that's part of the project of a book is, is finding how the story wants to be told, to frame it that way. You have to find the voice with which that book um, needs to speak. And the sort of book that I knew this was going to be with a, with a whole bunch of characters, um, you know, a family at the, at the heart of it, but a whole bunch of side characters as well, a big chorus, a big cast. I needed to find a way for all of them to have their little place in that chorus. And, um, you know, early attempts were far more conventional and far more constricted, I think, than the solution which I eventually found which came about because I got offered uh, the chance to do a couple of drafts of a film script. And when I came back to my novel, I suddenly saw the possibilities that a cinematic approach opened up with uh, prose as well and started to move from, you know, one consciousness to another, you know, uh, between the characters, but also from the characters to the invisible narrator of the book whoever she or he may be, that sort of leaping around is, is really how a camera behaves in a, in a film. And I suddenly saw no reason why it couldn't work in a book. And um, that was how I embarked on that unusual narrative approach. The characters, I mean, do they take on a life of their own? In other words, do they control you or do you control them? Well, realistically, of course, characters exist because you do. I mean, you're delving into aspects of yourself to find them and maybe... 
you know, stretching parts of your own nature into, you know, to cartoonish degrees to, to create these other beings, but they're, they're all extensions and ballooning's of yourself. That's not to say that characters don't feel as if they have their own life. So once you begin to imagine them in a scenario, uh, in the same way, really, that your, your psyche might embroider a scene in a dream and just imagine events and lines of dialogue and so on, your similar part of your brain begins to knit scenes in much the same way. So there, there is a sense that it writes itself or that the characters sort of steer themselves, but really all of it clearly originates in your your own mind. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a strange dance, which often feels as if it's out of your control. But part of the arc of the book is moving from that sense of lack of control to hopefully, finally, a sense of as much control as possible, which is what gives the book its sort of stylistic finish that's control over the language. But by then you've already made decisions about plot and dialogue and where scenes begin and end and, and so on. It's a long labor that moves from a sort of obscurity to hopefully some kind of clarity. And which character in The Promise did you enjoy writing the most? Probably Anton, the older brother. Um, he's in a field of strong competition. He's one of the more messed up people in the in the book. But it's always much more interesting to write somebody who's at odds with themselves, you know, conflicted internally. People who are sort of harmonious in their thinking and their ways um, just are, are not that arresting because there's not that much conflict. But people who are fighting with themselves continually. Well, there's a lot going on. And yeah, I mean, uh, Anton's more or less my equal, my, my contemporary. I understand him well. Um, messed up though he is. And um, I had a lot of fun. Well, fun, fun's not quite the right word because he's fairly tortured. But I, I had a rich time living in his head. Do your friends and family fear that they could end up as characters in your novels? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really discuss it with them. And generally, I uh, try not to write about situations and people too directly. You know, I, I think one's self, one's own life is fair game. And that sometimes does pull other people in. But um, I think that there are probably a certain number of people who would love to be in a book until they actually land up in one and then might reconsider. <laughs> so I generally think, you know, you have to transmute your life imaginatively into some other zone um, and in the process, hopefully make people less recognizable, even to themselves. <laughs> Was there a difference in response to the book from South African readers and international readers? can be hard to tell, actually, but um, it's an interesting question. I, um, I expected, or rather I dreaded, that the South African response might be very harsh, um, defensive. But in fact, I found on the whole the South Africans understood and welcomed the book in a very generous sort of way. But of course, it was welcomed generously elsewhere too. It's hard for me to say how people understand South Africa. I mean, through the different prisms they're looking at it. But I hope that the book conveys some sense of what it means to be South African. I mean, that was really part of what drove me. It was to express what that's meant to me, to be a, the particular South African I am and the, the age I am to have lived through the particular times recently that um, some of us have lived through. So, yeah, I can't really speak for overseas readers, but mostly I think the book's been very intelligently, sensitively uh, read and understood. I have very little to complain of. I understand that you write longhand on notebooks first rather than on a computer and that you have, I'm, I'm not sure if you call them literary superstitions or quirks, like the fact that you only use a tortoiseshell Parker fountain pen when you write. Can you tell us a bit about how you work? Well, you've kind of summed it up already. 
Um, I do have a thing, a bit of a fetish about stationery. So I love old-fashioned notebooks and pens, you know, with ink you have to load into them. And um, the mess that you leave behind, which is a kind of a record of the struggles that you have with yourself, you know, and with the book. Um, it's nice to go back sometimes and look at that stuff. The fact that, you know, your your every day is imprinted into the page, a bit of sweat or maybe a tear here and there, you know, um, it's all part of your life and it's all sort of somehow pressed into the page. So I like the graph of it. The computer makes everything so generic and so clinically clean. It's very convenient, but the convenience is itself, you know, part of what I react against, I, I suppose. Um, of course, in the end, I use the computer as a sort of sophisticated typewriter to do a final draft. But I'll do two or more drafts longhand first. I like the slowness of it, you know. It gives you more time to consider what you're setting down. And uh, I like the connection, the sense of connection between your mind and the word that you're putting down on the page. I, I can feel the line of it down my arm and through my fingers. Um, the computer, I don't know, even that's cut, you know, that line, you're tapping on a keyboard and something's appearing on a screen. There's a disconnect. So I'm sure I'm not making any converts on this front, but um, I like it old fashioned. Does writing ever get easier? No, I don't, I don't think it does, actually. There's always the hope that it does. And in a certain sense, one advances all the time. You do learn things, of course. Your technique and your skill will improve if you do the same thing over and over. It's inevitable. And if you do it with passion, uh, your learning can sometimes be rapid. And I've spent my whole life doing this one thing. I'm useless at almost everything else, but I have learned a few things. But effectively, what you do is you, you push your range of skill to a new frontier. That's all. Um, and that frontier is always the limit of your abilities. So in your head, you might imagine some fantastic and perfect book. But when you get down to writing that book, you're always constrained and hobbled by, you know, your limits. So it doesn't get easier. You, you're, you're always um, the person who can't write the perfect book. Finally, having been shortlisted twice before for the booker, can you tell us about the experience of winning? Yes, although it depends what aspect of it you mean. The The evening itself is one thing. It's a, sort of a bomb that goes off in your life and it's you know conducive to a sort of concussion. Um, it, it took a long time before I felt as if I had sort of touched down on the world again. But um, Beyond that, it's not a full year yet, and it's been a year of talking and talking and talking about the book um, and about myself to some degree too. So I haven't really had time in a certain sense to step back from it and reflect. I don't know what this year will mean in a decade or so from now, but obviously it's it's been very, very intense. In an excellent way, uh, it's very difficult for books to make any sort of headway, and this prize changes that dramatically, uh, but also in a way that I found quite difficult. I'm a fairly low-key person and um, this sort of attention cannot but be intrusive no matter how well-intentioned it is. So it's a year I'll remember as very, very intense, but I don't think I'll be sorry when it's over. The Promise is a remarkable novel. It's an astonishing novel and it's an extraordinary novel. Thank you, Damon. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Um, I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it. This exclusive books homebrew podcast was spread far and wide with the help of Vodapay. Vodapay is a super app that is available on all mobile networks. 
On the app, anyone from any network can send and receive money, pay bills and shop the amazing deals. All in one place. It really is one app for anything and everything. If you like it, Voda Pay It.